The poets are in the vanguard of a changed conception of being. Martin Heidegger, Being and Time. Every week we take a look at exciting theories, media phenomena, stories and art projects that attempt to dissect and criticize the things we tell ourselves about ourselves. The real and the digital are going to become more and more blurred. Journalism today is the incredible web. It's very early on and said, well, let's, let's do something serious about that. Hop on board and enjoy the ride. The phrase, code is poetry gained rather popular traction some years ago, when WordPress popularized it, or coined it, I'm not so sure. Albeit being said in a tongue-in-cheek manner, inspiring many, many tongue-in-cheek responses and analyses, not to mention a bunch of cool, geeky schwags, could there be a kernel of truth to it? To rephrase the question in Heideggerese, does code enable the truth of an entity to set itself to work? To stand in the light of its being? Is code art? I mean, sure, of course, it's very easy, not to mention fashionable, to call code art. There are a ton of digital works of art out there, from digital paintings to music to video games and virtual reality and so on and so on, none of which would be possible without code. But the question remains, is code itself poetry? Does machine language bring us a changed conception of being? Are coders secretly poets, unaware of their own status? In the world of art, there's this notion of distance, aesthetic distance to be precise, a phrase coined by William Bullock back in 1912, which he wrote about as something, quote, obtained by separating the object and its appeal from one's own self, by putting it out of gear with practical needs and ends, thereby the contemplation of the object becomes alone possible, end quote. It's the fancy way of saying that a shooting star is pretty, until you realize it's a giant meteor hurtling towards Earth. <coughs> now, this may be counterintuitive, but it is in fact this distance, this removal of purposefulness, that brings about the truth of an object, the contemplation thereof that brings the aforementioned changed conception of being. You need to distance yourself from something in order to get to the truth of it. This, of course, applies if you believe that truth resides in such a contemplation, as opposed to mere utilitarian functions. Although, of course, Heidegger has a lot to say about technology itself. 
But okay, before we get too far, let's get a primer going on the thoughts of Martin Heidegger. Heidegger's notion of truth comes from the ancient Greek idea of aletheia, an unveiling, a disclosure. Aletheia itself is not truth, but rather an opening towards which truth can be gathered. Heidegger talks about art with Van Gogh's painting of the peasant's pair of shoes and poetry with Holderlin and many others as things that eventually become substructures, ladders into something more, something more authentic. In other words, art is something that discloses this authenticity. This is why poets and artists are in the vanguard of a changed conception of being. One cannot but look at the world with different lenses after undergoing such an aesthetic experience. Of course, that was way back in the middle of the last century. If you ask the coffee shop corner postmodernists of today, they would hardly believe the existence of true aesthetic experiences let alone notions of authenticity being unveiled in whatever manner, which is somewhat of a loss if you ask me. But regardless, there's a valid question there. Do these notions of art that originate from way before the advent of digital and network technologies still apply today? Because arguably, postmodernists are right about one thing. Technology really has created a rupture in the way we see the world and our surroundings, in the way we connect with one another. This, of course, has impacted the world of art in fundamental ways. For one, we have varying levels of representation now. Everything is a copy of a copy of a copy with the original long dead, according to Baudrillard. We have the morphing and hybridization of spaces and realism of presence and absence. We have a lot of interactive possibilities, all of which question the idea of aesthetic distance itself. Our next guest, Ipe Koprulu, is a UK-based performance artist that explores these ideas, constantly playing with them to create new kinds of often surprising aesthetic experiences. Her work is mostly visual, so it might be a good idea to hit the pause button and check out our show notes or go to epec-coprulu.com to see some of her works so you'd have a more visual idea of what she's talking about. Don't worry, we won't get too theoretical in the conversation. We'll just be having a lot of fun talking about Epec's various exciting artistic projects why she does them and the things she has learned from them. We'll come back to Heidegger after the music break at the end of the interview. But now... Theoretical or not, narrative design is entirely self-funded. If you like us, consider donating to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash narrative design. That's patreon.com slash narrative design, all one word. That page is also where I collect all my Patreon pledges, so you won't only be supporting this show, but also essays, comics, and other weird and wonderful things I and my friends make, delivered first to you on your stream on Patreon. Our things will always be free, but I offer perks for those who donate. Read about them on our page, patreon.com slash narrative design. If you don't have the money or the means to donate right now, that's perfectly fine. You can help by giving a review on iTunes. Those things really do help. Also helping, sharing the episodes. If you think we're cool, let everyone know of our attempt at this unveiling of the workings of contemporary culture. That would make you cool too. 
All right, I'll see you back at the ship in a bit. And thank you for all your support. Listeners, we are back and we're joined with Ipek Koprulu. Hello, Ipek. Hello, hello. So, Ipek here is an artist, and I'll let her do her own introduction. Ipek? Uh, I'm a UK based performance and visual artist. I've always been interested in performing. I mean, I love playing different characters and following scripts, but after a while, I always thought that something was missing. Like I wanted to be able to invent my own characters, my own shows in different locations and environments. Um, so when I began to study live arts, um, I was introduced to, a, I guess, a new world of performance art. I began to realize that uh, performance did not have to always take place on a stage uh, completely separated from it audience so that's when i began to question uh the relationship between the performer and the audience um and i did not always want to be separated from the audience so i wanted them to be involved in my work somehow so i started to experiment with this in my um internal external project in 2007 uh, which I later on reperformed in 2014 for the Future Flesh show. Okay. In, in Gallery 223, um, which was situated under these um, railway arches um, near Waterloo Station, quite close to there. And um, it, it was quite a very dark space, very hidden. <laughs> I, I really loved it. Um, but yeah, so I, in that space, I performed between these two narrow walls. It was a very narrow, like quite small corridor. Oh, interesting. And yeah, so during this four hour long performance, I stood on a plinth uh, wearing this long uh, cloth, like drapes, so people couldn't see my body. And I concealed a tablet underneath uh, what I was wearing, secured it on my stomach. Um, so in, in order for people to watch um, this video, which was playing on the tablet, people had to go underneath what I was wearing. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I had attached like headphones to the tablet too. So, you know, people could listen to the video. Um, it was such an interesting experience for me because, you know, at the beginning people didn't know what was going on. Yeah. People just saw me standing on a plinth, yes. just this huge figure, you know, in the uh -huh. dark. Uh -huh. And, and then um, once, uh, people came close, I kind of would uh, guide them in, you know. Uh, and How, how did you it, do that? Um, the, the closer people got, I mm -hmm. kind of um, used my hand. I, I pulled my hand out. Okay. And once uh, someone, for example, someone grabbed it. So mm -hmm. I gently started pulling them and I lifted up um, the black cloth that I, I had see, I see. and obviously they saw 
some lights coming through yeah, there. Yeah. And then they eventually went underneath and people from the outside could obviously see that something was going on see, there and I they see. wanted to get involved as well. That's interesting. Are um, there any indications? Are there like, so are the lights visible from outside or do they have to get really close and... Yeah, it was completely hidden. I mean, okay. the video, the, the tablet... Mm-hmm. It was co- completely, and the video actually consisted of uh, three clips, uh, um, which was of objects. Um, I tried to give the impression that something internal, like in uh, in this case, the camera, like uh, in the video, or or you can say the viewer, uh, was being attacked by something external. Um, I just tried to set up an intimate. Yeah, claustrophobic, the space in which the viewer had to mm-hmm. watch the video. How did people react after watching the video? Uh, some, I mean, I got a chance to talk to some of the viewers afterwards. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, some said that it was uh, something like a completely different viewing experience for them. Um, because, you know, not only did they feel like they were just watching a video, but, you know, it was just very, I don't know, it was quite intimate. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you're playing around with this whole idea of um, the involvement between audience and artists, as you said, and this whole distance and spatiality, Um, right? Well, yeah, I did. I mean, I've I've been experimenting with this quite a lot uh, through my other performances, which I which I can talk to you later on about. It's just, um, I did not just want to be on a stage in front of a viewer. I wanted them to get close to me. I wanted them to, you know, interact with me physically as well. Um, so I remember like some of, even being able to smell some of the <laughs> viewers because, okay. you know, it was like quite close and, yeah. and, and, uh, you know, obviously for them, it got uh, pretty hot underneath as well because they're in a confined space. But, you know, people people could stay as long as they wanted to. Mm-hmm. So you performed this twice, right? <laughs> yes, I did. Were, were there any differences between the first and second performance? There was, because the first time I did it, I was at university and okay. I actually was not on the plinth and i wasn't yeah and i wasn't in a narrow space either Mm, i was in mm. a very open huge space Mm, i see so i don't know it was i think the second time was much better a much better environment lighting setting everything so (laughs) tell us about your evolution trilogy um, in 2012, I produced uh, three performances entitled like an, an evolution series. The the first performance was called uh, Chapter One, uh, the beginning, um, kind of using the theme of <laughs> Adam and Eve. But in this case, there was no Adam, and I guess I took on the role of Eve. But my character, um, I wanted her to be more animal-like. Um, I I had um, these several Barbie doll heads, and I was wearing a bot like a body suit, a lycra suit, um, beige. Uh, so um, my face was pretty much uh, hidden behind a mask, but 
only my eyes were exposed. Okay. So, um, yeah, it just allowed me to hide my facial expressions, but yeah, my eyes were, were exposed so the viewers could see my eyes. Um, yeah. And I wanted to appear more sculptural as well. And I wanted the audience to kind of question <laughs> whether I was alive or not when they first stepped into the space. Um, and, uh, yeah, so within the space, I had laid out, uh, real grass and I had a projection of like uh, this animation I made, right. um, on a wall. And the animation was of, uh, just apples falling down from a tree. Um, and I also had real apples like hung down from the ceiling, uh, with some fishing wire. Um, but the room was quite dark, so you couldn't see the thin fishing wire as much. You just saw these apples around. Um, and as for the sound, uh, I had recorded, uh, sounds of, uh, birds and geese. Um, and I decided to play these sounds really loud within the space, you know, to make it seem like you were out in nature somewhere. But of course, you know, you weren't, in, it was inside like some, some space that I had created. Um, and on the other side of the room, there were two cameras filming the whole thing. Okay. And, uh, and another camera was doing, uh, the live streaming. So, mm, I see. uh, I, I streamed the performance live on the internet. Like, so other people from uh, different countries were able to, you know, log in and watch it. Um, uh, but the viewers who came to the show, uh, uh, they had to enter the space one at a time. Okay. Individually, mm -hmm. one person at a time. And, um, they could only stay up to five minutes. Oh, I see. Uh, I see. Yeah. And before they, uh, walked into the room, they were also asked to take off their <laughs> shoes. I see. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, similar to the internal external project that I was talking to you about, um, some people felt, you know, awkward, uh, quite surprised to enter such a space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, they didn't know what to do. Um, I did not speak to anyone like, okay, and, right. and, and, um, but I approached them and, um, I wanted to interact with them. Um, there were some viewers who actually spoke to me. They would say certain things. <laughs> like and what things? Like they'd be like, uh, how are you doing? Oh, str starting a conversation. Yes. yes. Okay. I see. Uh, how did you react to that? I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk back. Okay. I wouldn't talk back. Um, instead, I, I just kind of walked around and I, I even held out my hand to them. Some of them felt comfortable to, to come close or to give me a hug or, or, you know, um, but others, they, they didn't even want to step on the grass. They, they weren't sure of what to do. <laughs> they were just standing by the cameras. Yeah, um, I see. Watching mm -hmm. from afar, you know, which kind of built, which, which reminded me kind of like the time I was on a stage, basically. So I was just on a stage and they were on the complete opposite side of the room, just right. watching and not, and not getting involved whatsoever. Right. 
Yeah, because mm-hmm. it is a completely new experience for people in general, right? To be taken, to be brought into the uh, to the sphere of art itself instead of just being an observer. And I guess this yeah. is what you you play around with in a lot of your yeah. works as well, right? Yeah, yeah, and and I kind of wanted to um, experiment with like what they would focus on more as well. That's why I, I wanted to have like so many things going on in the room. I thought like, okay, would they? focus on me more interact with me more or would they just watch this huge projection on a wall instead or or sit down or smell the grass i don't know but um you know when i realized that some people felt a little uh uncomfortable they they would watch uh the screen or look at the cameras or whatever um but i could always <laughs> see them looking at me from the corner of their eye as uh-huh, well okay <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it was really it was really interesting um and then i got a chance to also talk to um, the audience some of the audience members afterwards uh-huh, I, see. i interviewed them i asked the viewers who saw it live like um in the physical space and i and i also interviewed the viewers who just watched it online and uh i got some interesting responses yeah yeah what are they can you talk a little more well um the people who saw online said that you know obviously i don't know they couldn't see everything in detail they could see that i was interacting with different people i mean it it went on for about an hour or so the performance so they got a chance to see everyone who stepped in one by one um and the, also they didn't realize that there was grass on the floor you know mm, and okay. they didn't get a chance to you know experience walking on a grass barefoot yeah, yeah. Or, or smell or, or feel the heat in the space or anything yep. like that they could yep. see the animation and you know the the me and the viewers moving around but and, and hear the sounds of the birds but that was about it and also um <laughs> some people told me that while they were watching it they were also kind of doing other stuff in the background oh, like right, like, right. like you yes. know eating or or <laughs> doing some ironing yep. or whatever you know <laughs> or just like leaving and coming back but whereas like for the for the viewers who uh, came into the space that they were only allowed to walk in alone and stay up to five minutes so uh and, and obviously to to have me right in front of them um Mm-hmm. Uh, did they do people usually stay like how long do people usually stay um, for well this time i specifically wanted it to be up to five minutes i i actually had a a friend um by the entrance who made sure that you know people would come in and out at, at, within that time period but they can't leave earlier oh yeah they like, can they can leave earlier and some can, yeah. some people did leave earlier as well yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah but, i would guess i mean for people who are not used to it i mean they would feel a little awkward yeah they? and you know what it was it, it was also interesting because some of the people who came i actually knew these people oh okay yeah yeah like friends or mm-hmm. you know and, and some of them felt uncomfortable as well, <laughs> okay or, and, and didn't realize that it was me really <laughs> yeah okay so some didn't know and then and then they they finally realized so that was also um interesting 
and then well, um, with with chapter two, um, which was called "In the Flash of an Eye," like I, I, it was, it, I wanted to do something similar, but also something quite different at the same time. Like I, I wanted to have less things going on visually in the space. And um, there was one table on one side of the room with seven analog cameras uh, from, I think it was the 50s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and two disposable cameras. So they were all placed on a table and numbered, and the viewers were encouraged to take uh, photographs with these cameras. Um, and on the other side of the room, there was a digital cam- camera uh, with a PIR sensor attached to it. Um, so I, with the help of the Arduino, I programmed the camera to take photos of the viewers once they entered the sensor's range. Um, so um, this camera did not need anyone to push its button to take photos of people, whereas the analog cameras needed the viewers to, you know, and yeah so um it was just interesting because um it made me realize <laughs> how much people uh know or let's say not know about like analog cameras or how to use them um so people some people were even struggling to use disposable cameras <laughs> oh, okay. yeah and um as for the sounds i I, the only sounds you could hear in the space were just flashes of the cameras and clicks. Um, I was dressed as my character again. Um, I acted very similarly um, as I did before, but this time uh, more uh, people were allowed to enter the space, uh, stay as long as they wanted and leave whenever they wanted. I, see. Um, I could sense that you know, obviously some people were still getting uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. I think it was a lot less because there were other people around. And once people saw others playing with the cameras and taking photos, they started to get involved more as well. And, you know, people... Oh, so there could be more than one person yeah. in the room aside from you. Okay, yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was just one big room of uh, just people <laughs> taking a bunch of cameras from, you know, different years and then filming and taking photos of each other, myself, the space oh, itself. Um, yeah. So, so the work kind of looked into the theme of, uh, I guess, watching and being watched. Um, and it was also streamed live. So people could watch it online again as well. Um, so uh, yeah, people who were present in the space, um, they were also kind of <laughs> watching a performance through a screen as well because they were documenting it through a camera lens. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they also, some of them, uh, because there were only seven cameras, you know, not everyone could use the cameras. So some people decided to take out their iPhones and, mm-hmm. and film oh, it and take photos of them. So it was like they they saw the performance through their uh, mobile phones, their their mm-hmm. screens. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. And also at the same time, there were viewers watching it online through their laptop screens, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that was also, um, mm-hmm. a, d- so a different is, kind of experience. What is the relationship between chapter one and chapter two? Is it like, um, why did you make it in chapters? Uh, um, why did I make it in chapters? Because I mean, I w- what are these chapters? Well, first, I thought about nature, like the beginning, you know, like with the whole Adam and Eve story, um, they were put in this paradise. And um, so I I wanted to put up more of a, uh, have a nature kind of environment and have a few things going on visually. And I wanted to also play with people's senses more. Um, but in the second one, I kind of wanted to remove this whole idea of nature and bring in more of the um, tech side of things, I guess. And I wanted to use more cameras and I wanted the cameras to be uh, more uh, visible as well, because in the first one, not everyone looked at the cameras that were across from the other space. They were interacting more with the space itself and myself and um they were you know sitting on the grass and looking at the projection but whereas in the second one it was so obvious that they were being recorded from everywhere <clears throat> so i kind of wanted them to i don't know experience the whole performance differently through screens yep and um, there's a chapter three right yeah there is and in chapter three well it was more for me as <laughs> to be honest i wanted uh, my character i don't know i i, I kind of because in chapter one and two i confronted um the viewers a lot more and i and i was very much in control of things like i could see everything i could interact with them but whereas in the third one i kind of wanted to um well similarly to the internal external project i i wanted to be on a plinth i wanted to be very sculptural i made um this mask with a with a more of a neutral face i made it out of um liquid latex and it was also um uh hung up from a ceiling oh I see. so yeah so it was kind of floating in the air and yeah i was on this plinth and inside the plinth there was an analog uh tv which uh played uh, a video of my eye zooming in and out like towards mm. the audience <laughs> mm. so i kind of wanted that image the of my digital eye to replace my face i guess because you know it was so interesting. neutral interesting um, yeah and um this so is a completely side, different character from the uh from the one with the barbie faces right yeah i mean it is similar but mm-hmm. um i guess maybe visually like in terms of the face and and the experience the viewers had with the character was different because when I actually stepped onto the plinth and stood behind the mask, I couldn't see anything, like nothing. I couldn't see anything at all. I, I in fact didn't know what was going on. Um, the audio was, um, actually recordings of the interviews I had with the audience members who came to see chapter one and 
too. So it was kind of like a mishmash of uh, their feedback to to me. Um, so you would hear what people were saying about it and their experiences. But yeah, anyway, but during the third performance, um, uh, like I said, I couldn't see anything. And then I, I, I felt some people approach me and they grabbed my hands. They, they, I, I was standing completely still for 45 minutes. I was, I was just standing there like a sculpture. Um, so people came up to me and they touched my hands. They'd move my arms and my hands. So it kind of felt like they were molding me into yeah. different shapes, like a sculpture, you know? How did you um, feel when that happened? Um, I actually liked it because yeah. I mean, how, how, how great is that? I mean, I, I hate giving instructions to people with my I work. I, I absolutely see. hate it. Yeah. Um, to, you know, to write and say, this is what's going to happen. This is mm -hmm. what you should do. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, to, to have uh, viewers naturally just like come up to you and interact with you or not. It's just like very interesting to me because you're actually giving them the option to to interact with you however they want to interact with you. Um, and yeah, um, some people were even hugging me again. Interesting. So yeah, um, afterwards when I watched the recording of the performance, it was it was it was crazy for me to mm -hmm. watch because you know obviously I didn't know yeah, who, who they what were was yeah who was doing what yeah. How, how do you come to be able to trust your audience that much? Well, uh, I don't know. I, I just weirdly, I, I don't fear it. I, I, cause I think if anything bad were to happen, like if anyone tried to do anything bad to me, I'd react, you know? And, and also there are other people around, so they would also interfere. I'd have things under control very quickly if there were any problems like that. Mm -hmm. But it never happened. No, it never happened. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. Yeah, weirdly, um, it was just a very therapeutic experience. I yeah. think. Yeah. And even to see like how people responded and felt comfortable, it was it was just nice to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think of the relationship between? the artist and the audience in this manner i mean for you it's, it's a lot a lot more like a collaboration right so art happens in in the interactions themselves yeah i mean i i always plan out my projects and have um like specific ideas and and i i know how i'm gonna uh start things off and how how um, I want to interact with people, but, um, I don't have a, uh, how do I say it? Um, I don't think how it's going to end. I don't think, I, see. I don't really think about that. Mm -hmm. I just kind of let it happen because the, the, the amazing thing about, um, performance and interacting with audiences and performance, I think is just, um, every, every, every time you perform it, it will slightly be different because, you know, everyone, every audience member is different and they'll contribute to, to what you do and your interactivity or whatever in a, in a different way. Um, 
so in that sense, yeah, um, me, the viewers kind of, um, develop the story together, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. way. Yeah. 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 And I like that. What do you think of the, I mean, in the past, art used to be very monolithic, like very top down. They have to be admired from a distance, right? What do you think of this, um, of this distance and how it evolves throughout, uh, throughout time? Because you're also using a lot of not only interactivity, but also technology, like the autom- like Arduino, and you obviously you study a lot of programming yourself. So wh- how, what kind of impact do you think this has on the spectator? Because a lot of them are still um, nervous about it, can you say? Uh, well, with my work, I kind of, I give people the option to kind of observe from afar anyway. But yeah, I mean, no pressure there. You know, if you feel comfortable coming near and Mm -hmm, interacting, then that's great. But if not, you know, you can watch from afar. Uh, I don't know. I like using different technologies because it's just another uh, artistic tool for me to well, to experiment with to learn more about to produce work uh, i'm not a technical person at all i have more of a performance background but i i, I love to learn and just keep doing new things and yeah i like being able to combine the physical and digital in my work um and as a as a performer yeah, I find it important to interact with people and have them interact with my installations. It makes things a lot more interesting. Um, it, yeah, like I said before, it just becomes more performative and the viewers eventually end up becoming performers themselves in the piece, mm-hmm. not not just me. Yeah, I think it's very yeah. interesting. And also um, seeing your, your chapter one, especially there, it's very visible that you're uh, mixing a lot of different levels of representation should we say because you have real apples and then you have Mm. the projected ones and then you have um even even your own your own body is half canvas right i mean i saw the feel and it's like uh your 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 licorice suit yeah it's really almost you're almost like a chameleon back there in the background then you step out to the to the audience is this is this deliberate What, what are you what do you try to do with mixing these different levels? Yeah, it was deliberate. I very much wanted to kind of like blend in with the um, um, projection on the wall. Um, like I said before, I kind of wanted to be more animal-like, you know, just uh, moving around, hiding uh, in nature. But, uh, you know, I was hiding be- behind like this digital projection. So... Yeah, yeah, it was nice to play around with. And people stood in front of the projection too, um, which was nice. But I think visually, obviously, it looked slightly different because, you know, they weren't wearing what I was wearing. So um, you're using projections and a lycra suit as a canvas. How do you think has technology changed the perception of the body? Um, Well, I guess with things like I don't know, the internet or, you know, motion capture technology, telematics, use of holograms, and, and uh, that's all quite popular now, right? So um, the, 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 these things have definitely affected the way uh, we think of our bodies, you know, presence, absence. Um, they, they 
kind of change the sense of body. Uh, like, for example, if you see a hologram of me somewhere, uh, you could see that it was me, like my facial expressions, my movements, but, you know, it's not really my physical body. Um, so with a hologram, I'd be digitally present or even with on Skype, like if I was on webcam, I, you could see me, but physically, you know, I'm absent. Uh, so the materiality mm -hmm. of my body would not mm -hmm. be there. How I see it is that it really changes the, the definitions of presence and absence. Yeah. The whole virtuality, like these hybrid spaces that are that are coming out. Yeah, right. definitely. I mean, um, like in, in terms of like emotionally, let's say, I think, you know, you can be emotionally, I don't know, feel emotionally close to someone. Like if you're talking to them online or seeing them somewhere else. Yeah, totally. And I think what's interesting about that is that people used to say that virtuality isn't really real since it's actually absence and it's like a virtual, a fake presence. But I think it doesn't really matter anymore since a physical presence and absence don't really correspond to the emotions that may appear, that may come out yeah. of those interactions, right? The emotions are real. I mean, whether it's presence or absence. And I think in in your works as well, when you present all the different levels of uh, of symbolism, all the different levels of representation of uh, reality, I think the viscerality and the uncanny levels are also um, real and they have actual impact there. And I think it, it also questions people's perceptions on how they... Um, how they see the world and how how they see nature and how they see um being seen and seeing through lenses and cameras and screens and, yeah you know. but like for example the the viewers who saw the work online i think emotionally they just felt more detached from the whole thing oh, and, yeah. and that's yeah, what they I even see, said they, they were like okay it was kind of interesting to see your interactions with these people but you know we we weren't they didn't even know there was the grass in the space mm -hmm. you know they couldn't they couldn't see my eyes or my 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 costume in full detail you know so i think they they missed out on quite a lot there but that's that's because of the nature of the piece itself isn't it yeah do you think it would be possible to make a piece of artwork that is more impactful to online viewers rather than to physical viewers? Because I think that's a very interesting notion. Gosh, yeah. Um, I don't... Uh, <laughs> it might be doable. I mean, I haven't really thought of it yet. Because, you know, when, let's say you're going to your favorite gig or you're going to see your favorite artist somewhere and watching their performances on YouTube, let's say, is just so completely different from actually being present, you know, in front of them and seeing them play their instrument, right? It's just like a completely different vibe and energy. That's true, but, you know, I think of people, like a lot of people's comment on pornography and a lot of them actually say, and even the ones in the industry themselves say that it's better to watch it on the screen with some distance rather than the actual because the real thing would be just too much and you get to you know you get to see the things that 
you know, the, the little details that you might not necessarily want to see. And that they actually panicked when um, HD cameras were uh, yeah. were invented because not all of them have the best skin. So <laughs> they quite panicked. I mean, there, there was a small panic back then a few years back. So, yeah, I think I think I think there's definitely another side of that as well, you know, where online experience can actually be more pleasurable and more perhaps even more. Yeah, more more comfortable, more comfortable than the real yeah. thing. Interesting. Um, yeah, and what about the the future? How do you see your works and in the more general scope of the art world of the future? Um, well, I think artists will just continue to use uh, new technologies that come out in their work. Um, you know, ro robotics is getting popular. That's going to enhance as well. Um, projection mapping perhaps might enhanced too that's quite popular now um i think the i guess the real and the digital are going to become more and more blurred um which in turn is going to bring up more questions about presence and absence um but yeah i mean using new technologies in art is very exciting but at the same time i think it's important not to forget like uh, previous artistic techniques you know like i don't know painting sculpture um like for example there's this one artist called jake weedman i think that's how you say his last name <laughs> but he's um uh, like the youngest master penman in the world oh okay and Basically, it takes this guy up to months and years to produce the work he does. He just draws in such amazing, just detailed um, portraits and, and landscapes and animals. He's he's a pure perfectionist. Okay, um, and in our I think in our society, we're like obsessed with technological advancement and it takes a lot of, um, I guess, dedication uh, to save such art forms. And I think, yeah, it's, it's important for, uh, for us to keep them going. And um, in terms of my work, yeah, I'd like to be able to build with my own hands, and, uh, you know, stitch or, you know, make costumes but i also enjoy being able to learn how to code more and film and edit yeah i i can't wait to experiment with new technologies that are gonna come out all the stuff you shared earlier i mean from the bodysuit to the barbie dolls to the animation in the projection you did all those yourself right yeah yeah it's interesting i mean i think artists are demanded more and more to possess a wider range of skills in order to bring their artworks to fruition i mean of course you don't really have to do it i mean you could just focus on one certain thing like the pen and you know great details but then of course if you want to explore there are just unlimited mm. avenues that you can go through yeah right? okay well it's been a great talk yeah thank you for, e for yes thank you very much thank you very much
That was L.O.W. and Crocodile Tears with Him the Apophia. The illustration music earlier was a fragment of the Seikalos epitaph with The Lyre of Apollo by Lina Palera. Find out more of both songs on the album An Appreciation by the Music of Ancient Greece on freemusicarchive.org. What interests me most about Epex's work is its exploration of various hybrid spaces and identities. We see a juxtaposition of multiple levels of representation, projections, symbols, and the real, actual thing, stage and non-stage, body and sculpture, inside and outside, audience and actor, presence and absence. The real and the digital are getting more and more blurred. So I guess Baudrillard was right when he says that we are losing the real, and everything has become a simulation of itself. But does it mean we also lose meaning, being left only with information? In that case, then aesthetic experiences would not exist. We would only have sensations. And maybe it is true that sensations are the primary thing that we have today. But whether such sensations, or more specifically, whether what is presented by performance in digital arts today constitute an authentic aesthetic experience is another debate. 
a debate I'm not quite sure we'll ever have an answer to. But I want to take this back to our first question. Is code poetry? Or more specifically, or more generally, is technology art? When does technology become art? What we've learned from our conversation is that, yes, definitely, technology can be used to create works of art that bring us, quote, a changed conception of being. Although Heidegger might not agree. He, with his famous hammer, speaks of technology in an attitude he calls ready to hand. We tend to look at technology and its usefulness with no regards to theorizing being. When the hammer breaks down, we change to a presence at hand attitude. Theorizing, but not about being. Probably about why the head keeps turning sideways when you try to use it. One of Heidegger's big revelations is that technology, like art, is primarily an attitude, a way of looking at the world, in this case as malleable, and at things as means towards that purpose of malleability. But how do we know that such purposeful usage of technological artifacts cannot be dedicated towards the unpurposeful? Technology, after all, has always been needed to make art. A painter doesn't think of her brush as an object that unveils a transcendental truth. She just uses it without theorizing so that the painting can do the job. But then again, we find ourselves at the question of distance. Namely, how distant is the technological tool and the work of art? Can one thing be both at the same time, just like an audience is made a part of the performance? A negotiation of distance like those found in the works of Ipe Kapurulu also questions this theory. Take chapter 2, for instance. The cameras morph from being a tool of image creation into a part of the artistic experience itself. It becomes part of a larger dialogue on the nature of seeing the world, a contemplation of how the world unfolds itself into being through pixels and lenses. And it is this process of becoming, this permanent flow of hybridization, that is captured in today's great works of art. Turns out that code is poetry, just not in the way you usually think of. But what about works that are created as part of a larger universe of stories? How do things flow in such a process? Five individual stories probably would have been fine, but there was no central themes, there was no consistency between the parts. And what happens to the relationship between the artists and the audience when the latter gets so big and mobilize themselves to attack all critics of the art? I'm catching a bunch of heat from like fans of the game who like went after him. It was like, well, I've sent John Walker this angry email about this thing he did. And when we bring money into the equation, does it change the dynamics of what artists are willing to do? Getting paid, we maybe would have been more willing to shut everything down and just completely scrap everything and redo it. Next time on Narrative Design. Narrative Design is written and produced by me and mixed and edited by CJ Camellia Jonathan who also makes music for the show. Find out more about her on cjcamjo.com. That's c-j-c-a-m-j-o-e dot And more about me on bonnie.co. That's p-o-n-n-i dot c-o. We're also on at cjcamjo and at bonnie07 on Twitter. If you like comics, be sure to check out our Medium magazine, medium.com slash narrativedesign dash podcast to find show notes and a summary of this episode in comic format. 
Also, please consider a small monthly donation on patreon.com slash narrative design to help keep this vessel afloat. We really do depend on you. I'm your host, Bonnie Ramatan, and I'll talk to you soon.